So Jesus declares in John chapter eight that he is the light of the world and that whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There's this amazing gospel promise in John chapter eight. Jesus promises light and life to all who believe in him. And then here in John chapter nine, Jesus again addresses himself as the light of the world. John chapter nine is such a rich and beautiful chapter of the sovereign and saving grace of our God. And so for those of you who are taking notes this morning, I've divided this passage into three sections. First, we will see the healing of the blind man. Then we'll see the interrogation of the healed man. And then the revelation of the son of man. So the healing of the blind man, the interrogation of the healed man, and lastly, the revelation of the Son of Man. And my main point, what I hope you see in the text this morning, is simply this, is that Jesus opens the eyes of blinded sinners so that they believe in him. Simply that. Jesus opens the eyes of blinded sinners so that they believe in him. What John is doing in writing this gospel, he's selecting specific events in the life and ministry of Jesus to encourage us to believe in him. That's what John says in his purpose statement in John chapter 20. He writes, these things were written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing in him, you would have life in his name. This passage was written down so that you would believe in Jesus. And so that question that Jesus asks in this passage, do you believe in the Son of Man? That's the question for every one of us this morning. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in Jesus? The miracle, this miracle that we see in this text of Jesus giving sight to this blind man is number six of seven miracles that we see in the Gospel of John. Remember the first one we saw back in chapter two where Jesus turns water into wine. And then the second one is the healing of the royal official's son that we saw in chapter four. The third is the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda in chapter five. And then the fourth is the feeding of the 5,000. The fifth is Jesus walking on water, both of those in chapter six. This is the sixth. And then the seventh, which we will see, Lord willing, on Easter Sunday, is the raising of Lazarus. All these miracles are very different from one another. But every single one of them teaches us something spiritually about Jesus. Remember, I've said many times in this series that these miracles are signs that point to who Jesus is and what he has done. So this healing of the blind man, this story is written down pointing to who Jesus is and what he has done. This blind man is a picture of all of us by nature. We are all born spiritually blind We cannot see or understand the truth about Jesus unless we are given spiritual sight. 
And Jesus is the one who shines his light in the darkness. He's the one who gives sight. And Jesus' encounter with this man, everything changed. His blindness was healed. But yet that was not the greatest miracle in this story. Not sure if you saw it. It wasn't the healing of this man's physical blindness that was the greatest miracle, but it was the healing of his spiritual blindness. This man is brought to a place to see his sin and his need for Jesus, to believe that Jesus is the Son of Man, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the one who came to redeem, ruin sinners, just like every one of us. That's who Jesus is. And notice, even at the beginning of this account, Jesus takes the initiative. Jesus sees this man. He sees him. That means wherever you are in life, wherever you're at spiritually, Jesus sees and knows your condition, which is both frightening and comforting. Right? Frightening because he knows all of our sin. But comforting because he is full of compassion. And we see that in this text. Jesus sees the blind man who has been blind from birth. This has been something that he's struggled with his entire life. He's never seen anything. Could you imagine that? Never being able to see anything. We know that he was a beggar. In verse 8, we see that he makes his living by begging. And so there's a real good chance that he was an outcast. He was disregarded by society because of his condition. But don't miss this. Verse 1, it says, Jesus saw him. Jesus saw him. The writer of this gospel, John, does not waste words. The fact that he records here that Jesus saw this man is significant. It says Jesus slows down as he's leaving the temple. It's as if Jesus stares at this man and looks at him long enough that the disciples look at this man as well, and they turn to Jesus and they ask him a question. Look at verse 2. His disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Think about it. Jesus looks at this man with pity and compassion. And the disciples look at him self-righteously. They look at this man and they conclude that there's two possible reasons that he was blind since his birth. Either this man sinned in the womb or his parents sinned. Their thought process was sin leads to suffering. This man is suffering, so he or his parents must have sinned. But do you see how Jesus responds in verse 3? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus was not saying that the man born blind and his parents were not sinners, but he was saying to his disciples that his blindness was not a direct result of his personal sin or his parents' personal sin. But it is true that 
all affliction, all suffering that we experience in this world is a result of sin. It's a result of the fall of Adam's sin. All the difficulties that we face in life are because of sin, sin in general. But not all affliction is a result of your own personal sin. Sometimes it is. We see examples in the Bible. Sometimes it is, but not always. So there's a lesson here for all of us that we should be quicker to point out the sin in ourselves than in the sins of others. We tend to focus on what's wrong with others. Just read Twitter. We tend to focus on what's wrong with others than what's wrong with us. The disciples wrongly suggest that this man's blindness was due to personal sin, but Jesus gives us another reason for his blindness that the works of God might be displayed in him. Think about it. God ordained that this man would spend a large portion of his life blind so that Jesus could come into this world and heal him. To teach you. To teach me. So that we would see that Jesus has come to open the eyes of our dark hearts. His affliction was used to magnify the redemption and grace of Jesus. Think about how many people in the history of the world have heard this story and believed in Jesus. Year after year, this man dealt with this affliction, and he had no idea that one day the Son of God would come to him and heal him. But that was the plan of God for his life from all eternity. Only God knows why we go through the things that we go through. But the promise of God is that he brings good out of everything that comes our way. We see that in Romans 8.28. And he uses the worst pain He uses the worst suffering and the most confusing events in our lives to bring about his glory. There's always a purpose for our pain. You may never know the cause of your pain, but there's always a purpose. There's always a reason. And at the end of our pain, it's seeing Jesus more clearly. In the midst of our pain, there's an opportunity for those around us who who need to see who Jesus is, to see us suffer well, so that they would see that there's something different about those who call themselves followers of Jesus. And so the question we should ask when we experience suffering or we see others around us go through difficulties in their lives is what is God doing in this situation? What does God mean to do through this. Then Jesus says in verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I have come to give light to people who are living in darkness. Jesus doesn't come to people who have it all worked out. He doesn't come to people who think that they can do good enough, earn their way. He comes to us when we are in darkness. 
in rebellion. He is the light of the world. And now Jesus does something really strange in verse 6. Look at verse 6. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. All right, so Jesus uses spit and dirt, and he puts it on this guy's eyes. What in the world is going on? To be honest with you, I have no clue. I have no clue. We get to a verse like this in the Bible, and sometimes we have to say, I'm not exactly sure what's going on here. We can speculate. So I went to some of my favorite commentaries, and this is what some of them say. Some say it's an act of recreation. So from the dust, we were created. And so in some sort of way, Jesus is recreating the, the way that this man's eyes should work. Maybe, right? That could be. Some point out that putting mud on this man's eyes would highlight his blindness, emphasizing what he's about to do. Maybe. Some say Jesus here is using unlikely and unexpected means to point to the cross. So the cross is the most unlikely, unexpected means by which we get saved. In fact, it's the only way we get saved. It could be that. But in reality, we are not told the reason why Jesus did this. And then Jesus tells this man to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And John wants us to know that the name of this pool means scent. Right? He highlights that there in parentheses. And again and again, John refers to Jesus as having been, what? Sent by the Father. He was the long-awaited sent one. Jesus could be the true pool of Siloam. But also, this man is the one who is sent to the pool, right? And he has to believe, and he has to walk by faith. Think about it. It's pretty remarkable that this man gets up with mud all over his face, takes Jesus at his word, and he makes his way to the pool. That's the beginning of faith right there. We see God working in his life. And this man did everything Jesus told him to do, and he comes back seeing. He comes back seeing. Think about it. This guy is seeing things for the first time. The light of the world causes the blind to see. Isaiah prophesied about this somewhere around 700 years before Jesus. In Isaiah 35, he wrote, Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And he continues, And the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This man is a fulfillment of that prophecy made 700 years before Jesus. 
So we've seen the healing of the blind man. Now we're going to focus on the interrogation of the healed man. The interrogation of the healed man. So have you ever seen those videos uh, some people post online of like that child that was born deaf and then the doctor puts the hearing aid on their ear and then for the first time they hear their mom or dad's voice and they just, their faces just light up with a big bright spot. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yep. For those of you who know me, I am a softy. I cry a lot. When I see those videos, it's just, it just flows. Makes me cry. Why? But why does it make me cry? Why? Why am I so affected? Because I'm rejoicing in the fact that this child can now hear. Their affliction is now taken away. Think about this man for his entire life. He couldn't see. Up until this point, he never had seen his own face. He never had seen his parents' face. He never had seen a sunset. He never had seen a sunrise. He'd never seen a bird. He'd never seen a tree. But as he washed in the pool, maybe he saw his reflection. Maybe he looked up at the sky and saw the sky for the first time. Maybe he saw trees. He saw other people's faces. This was a time to rejoice. Who wouldn't rejoice at the fact that someone was healed from their affliction? Well, unfortunately, those in our text, they don't rejoice. We see no compassion. We see no excitement for this man's healing. The only thing we see is questioning. They interrogate the healed man. Notice there are four different interrogations in the text here. The neighbors interrogate the man. Then the Pharisees interrogate the man. Then the Pharisees interrogate the man's parents. And then the Pharisees interrogate the man a second time. And it all starts with this guy's neighbors. Here's a man that they've known probably for his whole entire life. And half of these people think he's a different person. It's crazy. What's interesting is, is that nothing has really changed about this man's outward appearance that should have caused them to think that he's somebody else. But it seems like it took some convincing to prove that he was the blind beggar that they all knew. Look at verse 9. It says, he kept saying, I am the man. And then they ask him how this happened. And he tells them that the man called Jesus, anointed his eyes, and told him to go to the pool. Notice that his focus isn't on the how, but on the one who had given him sight. The man called Jesus. This should be our focus as we witness. This should be the center and heart of our witness. Jesus himself. He should be the point. Then they ask where Jesus was, and the healed man doesn't know where he is. In fact, at this point, the healed man doesn't even know what Jesus looks like. He only heard his voice. So then the neighbors, I guess, decide that they need more help. So then they bring this man to the Pharisees. This was very much like taking someone to the Supreme Court of their day. 
They brought him to the highest court in Israel. Instead of rejoicing and throwing a party, the fact that this man can now see, they put him on trial. Look at verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when the man made mud and opened his eyes, or Jesus made mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud in my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. All right, so right from the start, their concern wasn't focused on what had happened, but when it happened. Do you see that? They said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Right? Even before that, there's mention, now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. It happened on the Sabbath day. God's law taught that on the Sabbath, on the seventh day, you shall not do any work. See that in Exodus 20, verse 10. But the Pharisees took that upon themselves to define what was work and what wasn't work. So, of course, they think Jesus is a lawbreaker and a sinner, but he didn't actually break the Sabbath. He just violated their man-made rules. The Sabbath was supposed to be a day of rest. It was supposed to be a day of worship, a day for doing good, a day for healing. But it had become a day with dozens and dozens of rules that left everyone exhausted and worried that they might break one of those rules. But it's also interesting that Jesus decided to heal this man on the Sabbath. Because the last time he healed a man, it was on the Sabbath as well, and that didn't go well. You remember? The Pharisees were extremely infuriated that Jesus would be healing on the Sabbath. And so you would think that Jesus would be like, well, I'm not going to do that again. Because last time it made everybody mad. But not Jesus. He purposely heals this man on the Sabbath day. He's not afraid of the religious leaders. And he was purposely doing this to expose their blindness. And then we're also given maybe another reason why Jesus used mud. Right? Because Jesus could have said a word. Jesus could have snapped his fingers and the man could have gained his sight. But he chose to get down spit in the dirt, and make mud. Jesus knew that one of the man-made rules that the religious leaders had on the Sabbath was that you couldn't make bread. You couldn't knead dough or anything that looked like kneading dough. And this making of mud was similar to that. Instead of rejoicing in the healing of this man, the religious leaders were furious that this happened on the Sabbath. John Calvin writes this, The restoration of sight to the blind man ought undoubtedly to have softened even hearts of stone, or at least the Pharisees ought to have been struck with the greatness of the miracle, so as to remain in doubt for a short time until they inquired if it were a divine work. But their hatred of Christ drives them to such stupidity 
that they instantly condemn what they are told that he has done. When hearts are hard, they can be very hard. You might be thinking to yourself this morning, well, if I just saw Jesus face to face, then it would be so easy for me to believe. Or maybe if I could see a miracle, then I would believe. It would be so easy to be a Christian if I could see a miracle. After looking at this text, do you believe that? What do they have here? They had Jesus right in front of them. They had a miracle right in front of them, and yet their hearts were hardened. They were blind. And then the heel man, he calls Jesus a prophet. And so what do the religious leaders do? They're like, we need to discredit this miracle right now. We need to shut this down. And so they go to the man's mom and dad. So they bring this man's parents in. So think about this. This man who was previously blind, he now has 20-20 vision, and he's standing next to his parents. And he sees his parents for the first time. And the Pharisees ask, is this your son who was born blind? And they also ask, how then is he able to see? Look at how the parents respond in verse 20. His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. What? They respond, Yeah, that's our son. Yeah, it's true. He was born blind, but he's a grown man and he can respond for himself. These parents abandon their son to deal with himself. Not the best parenting move. And imagine, think, think about this for the man. It's the first time he's seen his parents' faces and they're rejecting him. Not standing up for him. Why do they do this? Well, they're scared. John writes, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. They don't want to be excommunicated from church, which would also lead to probably becoming social outcasts. So they say, speak with him. He's of age. But after speaking to the parents, the Pharisees knew that the miracle was real. But they continued to try to suppress the proof about Jesus. Look at verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. So the testimony of the parents didn't discredit the miracle. So now the Pharisees are just full on attacking Jesus. So they come to this man and they try to intimidate him. Give glory to God. Say that Jesus is a sinner. They try to get him to deny the Lord Jesus who has already done so much for him. They want him to throw Jesus under the bus and call him a sinner. The irony in this text right here is thick. They think that they're sinless 
And they're telling this man to call Jesus a sinner. Jesus, the sinless son of God. Jesus, God himself. They're blind. They can't see. Verse 25, he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. What an answer. You want me to call him a sinner? Hey, I don't know if he is one. But here's what I know. I was blind my entire life until this moment. I was blind, but now I see. What a testimony. This is the testimony of anyone who has ever had a real encounter with Jesus. We see the Lord at work in this man's life. There's change in him. So my question for you this morning is, have you had moments like that in your life where your sin became real to you, where Jesus became real to you? Can you say this morning that something has changed with me? I once was blind, but now I see. The Pharisees press in again. Verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Ooh, okay. Hopefully you guys noticed the sarcasm there. That's bold, right? And then they respond in verse 28, and they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Verse 30, the man answered back to them, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This point in the story is amazing. You have this man who was a poor, blind beggar. He was an outcast, someone who had no voice in the community. And now he's standing in front of the religious leaders of the day, taking them to school. He's telling them the truth. And, he, and, and at this point, he's not even saved yet. That's the crazy part. But the Lord is working in his life. He defends Jesus. And you can tell he's really annoyed. He's lost all the respect that he had for these Pharisees. And it's obvious to this man that Jesus must be from God. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin and would you teach us? And they cast him out. What a sad moment. Sad moment for the church. They were blinded by their religion. In their minds, they were not born in utter sin. But this man was. But the truth of God's word says is that all of us were all born in utter sin. All of us were dead and blinded in our sin. 
Last year, Nate and I were working on a project at my house. In the process of sawing some wood, I was not wearing the recommended eye gear, and a small piece of wood landed in my eye. And at first, it was annoying. I kept on rubbing it. And then it got worse to the point of where I could barely keep my eye open. I couldn't see. Then I had to go to the emergency room. Sinclair Ferguson has said this, a basic misunderstanding of the Lord Jesus and a basic misunderstanding of the way that the Lord Jesus operates will become a little speck in my eye that I continue to rub until I'm completely blind. If we don't know him savingly, if we cannot see who Jesus is, he's like an irritant in people's eyes. And they rub and rub until they're completely blind. We see this clearly in the Pharisees. And then in verse 40, Jesus tells them because of their rejection of him that they were guilty of not seeing him for who he truly is. They were satisfied in their darkness. They believed that their works could save them. They didn't see their need for a savior, so they continued to reject Jesus. So all throughout this passage, we see this stark contrast between the religious leaders and this healed man. So we've seen the healing of the blind man. We've seen the interrogation of the healed man. And now we'll see the revelation of the Son of Man. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus finds this man. Special moment. He hears that this man's been cast out. I mean, he'd already been cast out, but he'd been cast out even more so. He goes and he finds him in order to reveal himself to him. At this point, this man's not converted savingly. He will be by the end of this passage. But do you notice that the work of God in this man's life, the progress of it all throughout this text? We see this steady growth in his understanding. At first, he simply referred to Jesus as the man called Jesus in verse 11. But as he was forced to think and talk about what had happened in verse 17, he realized that Jesus must be a true prophet, one who speaks and acts for God. In verse 33, he comes to see that Jesus is the one sent from God. And then in verse 38, Jesus comes to him and says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Everything in this chapter has been leading to this moment. Do you believe in the Son of Man? The Son of Man is this messianic title. It's Jesus' favorite title that he uses for himself, and it comes from Daniel chapter 7, it refers to the one who would be the savior of sinners and the judge of the world. And here Jesus is helping us see the greater importance of the story, that there is a spiritual sight that is more important than physical sight. This man needed to be saved. He needed to believe in Jesus. So Jesus comes and finds this man and says, do you believe in the Son of Man. The man says, look at verse 36, well, who is the Son of Man that I may believe in him? He's, he's ripe and ready. He's ready to go. Who is the Son of Man that I might believe in him? 
And Jesus gives one of the most direct responses in this gospel. He says, you're looking at him. You're looking at him. Look at this man's response in verse 38. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. What a beautiful moment. This is the climax of this story. While the man's physical healing was amazing and it showed just how powerful Jesus really is, nothing compares to when the Lord opens the eyes of those who are spiritually blind so that they see Jesus for who he truly is. From this man called Jesus to the prophet to the one sent from God, to the Son of Man. Now here he confesses Jesus as Lord, and he worships him. Jesus healed this man's physical sight, but that was not his real need. He needed to be saved from his sins. He needed to see that he was a sinner and to see that Jesus is the only one who could save him from his sins. And so Jesus opens the eyes of this man's heart and he sees and he believes and he worships. Glory to God. What a powerful testimony. And then Jesus says in verse 39, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. So at first it it seems strange here for Jesus to say for judgment I came into the world, right? Because earlier he said, I did not come to condemn the world. But what Jesus means here is that his mission was not one of condemnation. His mission was one of salvation. And yet the mission of saving sinners was also the mission that would result in judgment. Right? There are those who will reject Jesus and then will go into judgment. Jesus came into this world to save sinners like us. And so this morning, do you see your need for Jesus? Do you believe in the Son of Man? It is a blind man in this text who sees Jesus. And it's the religious leaders, the Jews, who do not see Jesus at all. But we all must get to that place and say, by nature, I am blind My heart and my mind are darkened. One of the most difficult, I guess, things we could trip over as we come to, as we try to come to Jesus is our own pride. Thinking that you're good enough, thinking that you can earn your way to heaven. We were all born with spiritual blindness which means we all need the touch of Jesus. We all need the Holy Spirit to enable us to see Jesus for who he truly is. Notice what the Pharisees say in verse 34. They say, you were born in utter sin. No, we all were born in utter sin. But the moment that we recognize that and the moment that we call out to the Lord is the moment that we have our eyes opened 
Respond to the gospel as this man did. Fix your eyes on the wonderful Savior. Confess him as Lord and worship him. And all of us need our eyes open more and more. This text isn't just for people who don't believe in Jesus. This was written so that you, Christian, would believe in Jesus more and more. So don't think that you get a pass this morning. We all need our eyes opened more. We all need to grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus. We all should be asking him, open my eyes that I might see you more. Open my eyes that I wouldn't love sin and darkness. Open my eyes that I might see the Savior on the cross because of my sin. Even as Christians, we still need our eyes opened. We're all prone to compare, right? And and quick to focus on the sins of others, like the disciples at the beginning of this passage, like the, the, the Jews and the Pharisees all throughout this passage. We're quick to point out the shortcomings of others and not our own sin. May we be a people who are quick to see our own sin, to see that log in our own eyes and quick to go to Jesus for healing. Jesus loves to open the eyes of sinners like us. Jesus loves to do that. The testimony of every Christian is this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Jesus opens the eyes of blinded sinners so that they believe in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this amazing passage in your word where we see your sovereign initiative, you acting first, pursuing. Lord, we give you all the glory for what you have done in each and every one of us who have been transformed just like this man. We thank you that although we were blind, you have opened our eyes to see. Jesus, we thank you that you are the glorified Son of Man, the light of the world. We pray that you would continue to open our eyes to see our sin more and more and to see the beauty and majesty of who you are. We pray that you would make us a people who are quick to see and repent of our sin and that we would share this amazing grace that we have experienced with others.